0: The episode you're about to listen to was recorded before the COVID-19 crisis. However, last week, Paul and I got back together to talk about how Bull Foods is getting through the current situation, and you can hear that update at the end of this episode. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. If you've listened to the first few episodes of Series 2 of Brand Growth Heroes, you probably know that one of the themes we're exploring is the brave decisions that Food & Bev founders sometimes have to make. In this episode, we're talking to Paul Brown, CEO and founder of Ball Foods, a fast-growing, chilled food brand that offers plant-based dinner boxes, veg pots, salad jars and soups to busy foodies, and is available in most retailers nationally across the UK. Paul launched Ball after 14 years at Innocent Drinks, where he gained invaluable experience across roles from field sales to sales controller, and finally as General Manager of Innocent Foods in 2014. He launched BOL, spelt B-O-L, in 2015. And what's particularly fascinating about this story is the brave decision that Paul made for ethical reasons that led to BOL becoming the first FMCG food brand in the world to drop all meat, fish and dairy from their products to become 100% plant-based. Here's our interview earlier this month where Paul tells us about the learnings at Innocent that have helped to drive the superb growth at BOL, his super brave decision to pivot his business model to 100% plant-based and his thoughts and plans around plastic packaging. Paul Brown, welcome to Brown Growth Heroes and thanks so much for joining me for a chat today. Where
1: are you calling in from? I'm calling in from our digs in Paddington, the veg pad. Nice, I love your wallpaper. Yeah, we've got a lot of forestry themes running through the whole business for obvious reasons. It's a good place to come into every single morning.
0: That's fab. So on the show... We always start with a really quick overview of what our guests make and who they make them for so that listeners can understand what we're talking about. Can you tell everyone about Bowl? Why did you start the company? What do you guys make and where would we be able to find your products?
1: So we make 100% plant powered soups, salads and delicious curries, paellas, tagines. And they are mainly sold in the big supermarkets around the country and also online in the likes of Ricardo and various high street outlets like Costa Coffee and WH Smiths.
0: Okay. And why did you start the company?
1: So I started the company largely because I'm the, that kind of guy that tries to fit in too much into every single day and love to cook from scratch as much as possible. But time is just very regularly on my side. And with the greatest respect to pret manger I am... Um, <laughs> a bit bored of spending too much money in those types of outlets. Okay. So started started bold to make it easy for busy people to eat well.
0: So basically it was coming from your own experience, something you needed in your life.
1: Exactly. It was there to solve a, a personal need for myself. And I just think for too many occasions when you're choosing convenience, you have to compromise. You have to compromise on taste, health, or quality. Yeah. And I just felt that it could be done in a different way and that and that's why we started the business back in 2015.
0: Okay, so what's Bull's mission?
1: So our mission is now to inspire the world to eat more plants and clearly we're going we're gonna to we're going to come onto that. Back in the day it was it was to make it easy for busy people to eat well. It was more about street food and foodiness. Um, the mission now is to become the number one naturally plant-powered food brand on the planet. Wow. So clearly a, a massive vision aim for the stars, maybe land on the moon. And it's such an exciting space to be in. I actually just came out of a numbers meeting and we calculated we have... Now made over 30 million portions of veg since we started the business. That's amazing. And from a mission perspective, the reason we want to inspire the world to eat more plants is it's kinder to our own planet and it's also better for our health. So success for us is making as many portions of veg as possible and making it easy for people to get them to the diet.
0: Okay. And so how many of you are there now in the offices at Bull?
1: So there's 21 people full-time in the veg pad and within the next couple of months that's likely to be over 30.
0: Wow okay so really fast growth then
1: yeah we've got big ambitions as I've just said and and, and year on year this quarter versus last quarter in 2019 will be up over 80 percent the complexity of the business as we innovate more and launch into more sales channels, just means I need to surround myself with even more great people. The team would probably say now we've got 21 of us, but we need 30, we needed 30, a few months back, not not in a few months' time, but that's I guess that's startup life.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it, that question as to when to take on new people, you know, do you do it before the growth spurt or during the growth spurt? or after the growth spurt when you've got the money to pay for them. But you probably learned a lot of this when you were in Innocent because you were already managing a big part of their business, weren't you? I mean, what did you learn during those 14 years that you've been able to use when you've been setting up bull and driving this growth?
1: So I've got to be careful with this question because I could take up the whole podcast. Mm -hmm. I I dropped out of university and, and was living in California and one thing led to another and I ended up at the doors of Fruit Towers knocking on the door asking rich adam and john for a job and i never knew that that visit was going to lead to me spending 14 years at what was for me the best business school in the world i arrived at their front door literally not having a clue about business and left 14 years later confident to start my own business in the world of fmcg so what did i learn with those guys i learned that how you are in business in terms of creating a fantastic culture that people want to come into work every single day and very purpose-driven, a real strong belief and value structure, be obsessive about the products that we're putting out into the marketplace, iterate it constantly to, to make it better, never rest on laurels, get really, really smart people into the business with a can-do attitude the list just goes on and on I've heard people call it like the innocent mafia because it feels like pretty much most food and drink businesses certainly around the London area in some way shape or form have been started by or have people that have maybe treaded the boards at, boards at innocent so- yeah
0: it's a complete accolade to that business isn't it
1: I think it is. I think it's a, I mean, I joined the business when there was less than 10 of us. We were selling a few hundred thousand pounds worth of smoothies uh, within the M25, and I left. It was over 300 people valued at hundreds of millions of pounds and was a global success. So that 14 years, when I was in it, I don't think I realized how much I was learning, but now I know every single day I am. Making decisions and using experience that I gleaned from all those years.
0: So, when we were talking on the phone originally, you said something that really struck me. You said, you know, that the food industry is really, really hard, it's not easy. Mm. And I totally agree with you, you know, and sometimes when you're working with startups and they're going into it not necessarily knowing how difficult it is, particularly chilled food, you kind of think, God, I wish I could be really honest with you and say, this is really hard. (laughs) You're going into a short shelf life, chilled food, you know, with very little experience. What are the things that stick out for you as the really difficult things to manage as a chilled supplier to a grocery retailer that you were able to bring with you from Innocent and overcome probably more quickly than had you been starting from scratch?
1: Again, there, there is a long, long list to that question. I think from a category perspective, the main difference between stating the obvious, between the, the ambient categories and, and the frozen categories, is that w- within chilled, if you are creating a product range like we do at Bowl, which is 100% natural, no preservatives, no additives, the Achilles heel for the product that you are making is shelf life. Because anything that you make today at bowl anything we make today take our salad jars for example we need to get it out of our production kitchen onto a lorry out onto into the depots of the retailers and onto the shelves and then it needs to sell within five to six days and if that doesn't happen you create wastage and and obviously it's not long before for a number of different reasons you realize that That is not a successful business model for any of the stakeholders along. So I think the difficulties from a production perspective to create a product with minimal shelf life and then logistically get it around the country and then be able to market it in a way that works for all parties is very, very hard. Yeah. Everybody knows that that's involved in FMCG. There is a constant battle between Uh, retailers looking to push their own label and then also bringing in brands to to do something different retailers and retail space has has largely become homogenized over the last few years and so many of them see their point of difference being what they can do with own label so as a as a challenger upstart brand like ourselves it's critical to show that we can do something different and bring category value in a way that they couldn't do themselves and Doing that with a brand that nobody knows about, which is where you start, is, is incredibly tough. I mentioned the innocent mafia phrase earlier, and I, I'm I think I am the only person who has left Innocent and started a business that has shorter shelf life than we even mm-hmm. dealt with back in the day. And I must admit, I do envy the others around the trade that have a much easier supply chain. But for me, it's a fundamental pillar in what we do at bowl. We want to make things as as close to what Mother Nature creates as possible. For me, Chilled is a proxy for health and naturalness. And so we're doing it the hard way. But for me, we're doing it in the way that over time is going to best serve the brand.
0: Well, it's funny because, you know, I always think that someone who can manage or a business that can manage a short shelf life well has got a number of skill sets that a business that just has, say, an ambient product. And that's not to disrespect anyone in ambient or frozen, but I think if you can manage a chilled shelf life business well, you really are great business people and as you were describing all of the things that you need to look after in that situation I was imagining the kind of team that you would need and I suppose you know you're going to need someone who's obsessively focused with product development to bring new value to the retailer you're going to need someone who's a brilliant supply chain manager who else do you need what kind of roles do you have in your team that are absolutely critical to making all of this happen
1: so I, the way I split the business is in, into five different functions so start with the finance team so we obviously have to make sure that, I mean, my business business partner has a, has a finance background. He was trained at Ernst & Young. He was at Procter & Gamble. He was at Innocent. And then I often say when people are, are asking advice on starting a business, who are the people to get around you at the beginning, if you are not a numbers person, which I class myself as a numbers person. I know my way around the three financial statements, but I'm not a finance guy. Or woman, and and he he runs the finance and cash burns so much quicker than you think. So getting in that finance team is crucial. Then we have operations, as you say. Yes, we have uh, an outsourced production model, so we don't actually own the facilities where we make our product. Which again, I think surprises certain people outside the world of FMCG, but. Uh, to own our own bowl kitchen would would cost millions to make at the scale we do but you definitely need to manage that whole supply chain yeah within the operations team we have incredible product developers nutritionists technical people then we have obviously the commercial teams the commercial team manage the relationships with our retail partners then the brand marketing team within the brand marketing team we have to be all over the consumer trends the category trends and ultimately putting in place strategies that deliver consumer happiness. And finally, last and certainly not least, is the people team. So in a world where well-being, happiness, um, that whole community feel is becoming more and more important in the workplace, we've got to make sure that we've got people looking out for each other and giving us great training and learning and development and, and building that culture. But I'm so proud. We've got, as I say, there's 21 people in the veg pad at the moment, and... I know for a fact most days, yes, the team work really hard and yes, there is a ridiculous amount of pressure. But I know they, for the most part, come into work feeling really excited and energised and and are massively passionate about what they do. And, And getting the right people with the right structure to kind of really put themselves on the line is absolute demand for a startup business because without those people you really are nothing and the tough times that come at you in the startup world are much much greater than, than you think they're going to be and, and you need people that are in it, in it for deep-rooted reasons not just to get a paycheck at the end of each month.
0: And you know I suppose this next question is probably a podcast episode onto itself but that's an awful lot of people You know, at what point in your trajectory do you decide, right, we're going to go from five of us, say, to 15, you know, or 20? How do you make that leap? What is it? Is it that you have the money available to and you need it to anyway? Or do you say, no, to go to the next stage, I'm going to have to take this leap of faith and bring these people on and hope that the growth comes afterwards?
1: Yeah, I think for us, we, we pretty much bootstrapped the business. So I read in The Grocer on a weekly basis how these relatively small businesses are raising millions and millions of pounds and, and that is one way to do it. And I guess if you've got millions of pounds sitting on your balance sheet, then the strategy is to invest ahead of the curve and, and get all those people on the payroll before you can really justify them. We, we did it the other way in the sense that, yeah, we, we started the business and uh, there was only four of us. And so, yes, I had Ed, who I mentioned, looked after finance, but at the same time, he also stretched into commercial. We had, And then there were three of us that had to run the rest the rest of the business. So I think in those early days, you just have to get stuck into everything. And then it just becomes really obvious that things are creaking in the operations team. So you need to get another supply person in or things are creaking in the brand team and, and you need to get a, a specialist brand manager in. And, and I think those... Those new recruits, they definitely weren't for me anyway. um, They didn't happen sequenced in the way that I thought they would happen. It happened because it became very obvious if we didn't recruit those specialists at that point in time, we were not going to be able to carry on at the pace we were. So yeah, you just have to freestyle it a little bit on the recruitment side. But the one thing you can't freestyle is getting the right people and taking the time to interview those people and meet lots of people and and our growth is so much down to those early recruits in those first few years and, and I'll be forever grateful for everything they sacrificed and everything they put into the business in those first few years.
0: That's really lovely to hear you mentioned before when we were on our call that everybody in the company interviews somebody new explain that to us because that's very cool.
1: Yeah so the way I like to recruit at ball is not that I make a decision on every single hire that we make. I obviously the recruiting the recruiting manager should lead that process, but we don't just have said interviewee being managed by said functional people that person will work with because we work in we work in an open plan studio. Uh, everybody interacts with everybody else and while I don't want everybody in the business to be metronomes and all exactly the same and think exactly the same, I do want that to be a good vibe between everybody. So I very much try to empower the individual uh, recruiting managers to make sure any new potential people who come into the business meet those people. And it's good. And I think the people being interviewed like it as well. I think too often when people are interviewing, they think it's just a one-way a one-way street, I'm recruiting, you're looking for a job, therefore I hold the power. I'm just interviewing you, and I think they forget the person on the other side of the table is probably interviewing them at the same time, and nobody can sell the brand better than the team. So I've obviously got my way of of selling why I think ball is an absolutely incredible place to work. and I think over the next few years, we're gonna. Well, I was, gonna, I was thinking we're gonna pull up trees, but we're not. I'm definitely saying we're gonna pull up trees is not <laughs> a good thing to say. But I think people will get what I mean. Uh, yeah, we're gonna do some um, incredibly exciting stuff. But clearly, I, I'm. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be saying it from a slightly biased standpoint. I've never teed up a person to go into an interview to say anything. I just tell tell them to be themselves. Sure, that's like the sure. best version of, of themselves is is all I can ask.
0: Tell us when we were interviewing people for Goo or then for Chibani when we were setting up the European head office for Chibani in Amsterdam, one of the big draws for people was the free product. And that sounds crazy, doesn't it, when you're, you know, applying for a job. But often, you know, packages can be similar and businesses can be, roles can be similar, but it's about, you know, the kind of people who are surrounding you and what you're going to get to eat every day. And certainly in Goo, everybody was delighted at all of the free product that was always swimming around the offices. Is your office a bit like that? Do you have fridges full of yummy salads and curries for people to eat every day?
1: Yeah, it is one of the perks of of working at Boll. We have a fridge stocked every single day of salad jars, veg pots, dinner boxes, super soups, the team, steam through them every single week at a rate of knots, which which I love to see because
0: yeah.
1: it doesn't matter what part of the team you work in, you need to know the product. Yeah. The, the product is the brand. And I actively encourage everybody to have an opinion. And And because we make fresh food, the flavors can change, the visuals can change. And so I, I encourage everybody to feed into Susie who manages our QC to say, what did you what did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? And just, just build up that feedback on, on the product and know the products. And we work uh, where we actually moved. Um, we used to be based in Westbourne Studios in Notting Hill and we moved about four months ago. So the veg pad is uh, on the top floor of the WeWork in Paddington. And people who know WeWorks know it's quite famous for having beer on tap, oh, wow. Seco on tap. and it's some wicked space we've moved to, but we don't have as much fridge space. So previously I provided breakfast for everybody as well. And I've I've stopped providing breakfast. Oh no. You talk talk about the food and we made, made the move and I was just so, like so happy with where we moved. And quite a few of the team were like, uh, but we don't get breakfast anymore. And I'm like, oh my goodness me. (laughs) You get free beer, but you'd rather have breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm like, well, you can have a super soup for breakfast. Anyway, it'll just mean we need to fast track our innovation because I want bowl to be available at any time of day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacking. It's got so, to be.
0: You know, that's the one thing I think is really missing out there right now is a really, really, really good overnight outs, Paul. So I'm hoping you guys are going to bring that out at some point because there's nothing out there that you can buy that isn't nicer than what you could make yourself. And you want to you want to buy something that you kind of think, mm, well, that's worth the money because I couldn't have just done that myself.
1: Yeah, that is one innovation stream on, on the radar. I think one of the biggest challenges we as a business and I've personally got at the moment is... Keeping the main thing the main thing. Right. I want us to fast track our innovation. I've got so many ideas, as have the team, of, of what we could do. But as everybody knows, in FMCG, we go from idea to launch within about nine months. And that is quick. Most bigger companies do it kind of, they do it between 18 months and two years. That's the norm. So the amount of resource that goes into launching a new mm-hmm. range of innovation is is so big and time-consuming. So we've just got to make sure we back the right piece of innovation that we can scale in a way that justifies that amount of time. Um, but one day, Bob will do breakfast, I'm sure.
0: I look forward to it. So talk to us then about this really brave decision you made to pivot entirely towards plant-based ranges because before you had meat fish and dairy in your ranges didn't you and then all of a sudden you decided not to anymore talk to us about that because that is a really big deal isn't it to have stuff on the shelf and then all of a sudden say to retailers I'm not going to do those lines anymore
1: yeah it was from a career perspective the scariest time of my life I knew enough about the decision that I was making to know that there was a high probability we would go out of business but I had what I call my Cowspiracy epiphany and got closer to the impact that our food choices are having on the environment and our health and read amazing books like The Food Revolution and How Not to Die and obviously watched Cowspiracy. And it was at the back end of 2016, so we were just coming up to two years old. We were in double-digit growth as a brand. We'd just won new business of the year. Things were looking rosy and 52% of our Business had meat and fish in at the time, and I made the decision to pretty much overnight drop those recipes and from market. And I started by coming back and talking to my business partner about it. who's the aforementioned finance guy, and he kind of did the numbers and was like, uh, "That isn't going to look good." <laughs> I, was, I kind of, it was so binary. I, I knew what impact it would have because we didn't have a lot of plant-based innovation to replace those lost stocking points, uh, but. I I just felt that it was like a genuine epiphany when I was I was like we can we can be a brand that stands for so much more if we really sharpen that north star and and go 100% plant based so we dropped the meat and fish we didn't drop the dairy immediately because then we wouldn't have had enough uh, skews in market to justify any shelf space and I have to say they, they get a bit of a bad rep sometime, but let's take the biggest retailer in the UK, Tesco's. I was going to them and I was saying to them, a couple of their best sellers were like our Jamaican jerk chicken and we had a Carolyn coconut chicken. And, and I was saying to them, I'm pulling those from market. I don't have any new recipes to replace them, but... Give me nine months and, and we'll come back with a vengeance with, with lots of great plant-based MPD and please keep the remaining handful of SKUs in the market to allow us to continue to trade. And, and they did. And, and all of them supported us through that massive transitional period. And it was not an easy sell to all stakeholders, investors, production partners, retailers, the team. I told the team to brush up their CVs because there was a good chance we were going to go out of business, but we didn't, and we got through it. And obviously this was back in 2016, and, and I could never have envisaged that we sit here now in early 2020, that this plant based movement... I mean, people talk about us being part of, of taking it from niche to mainstream. It feels like it is now mainstream. It was a few years ago, everyone was talking about cryptocurrency, but now all everyone wants to talk about is vegetables and I'm loving it. Wherever people are on the spectrum of vegan to flexitarian, it feels like it it is in the consciousness of the Western world. Now we're talking about, we're realizing that the impact of the Western diet on the planet is just unsustainable and, and we're the generation that can do something about it.
0: So the nice thing about this is, is, you know, we talk about a company's mission coming from an authentic place, you know, place of authenticity. It sounds like that you did this because it was what you felt you needed to do, rather than you saying, this is where the market's going. If I go there, I'm going to have a real edge. Is that fair or is that, you know, revisiting the past with rose-tinted glasses?
1: Oh, no, I'm not smart enough to predict the trend. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that lovely, though? I mean, isn't that lovely? You can actually say, you know, you're probably one of the only people, certainly in big food, you know, I, I get fed up sometimes. I have, my background was in Big Food and originally and I get fed up with the way in which the story is retold in Big Food where they say, you know, that's what we do anyway or that's what we were always going to do. We've always been working on this in the background. You think, no, you blooming haven't. Or if you have, you didn't know how important it was until now. So, yeah, you know, but it sounds like yeah. you genuinely did this for the real reason and then you happen to be in the right place at the right time and that's just good.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, the thing is, Almost half the business was vegan and vegetarian. So it wasn't new to us. We of we had half
0: That's a good half point. of
1: our business out there was doing really, really good recipes that we were proud of. And I got as I as I saw the inefficiencies that the 7 billion of us on the planet is going to be 10 billion we already can't feed the world with the current processes The the amount of the 70 percent of all water we use fresh water is from agriculture most of the food we create we feed to animals i mean it just didn't make sense to me and so you're absolutely right i made the personal decision and it was definitely the best decision we ever made by quite some margin
0: Tell me this, why not phase it out slowly so that you could reduce the risk of losing facings on shelf and all those kind of practical things? I,
1: if I decide I want to do something, I, I do it. And I didn't go to business school and do, do a lot of things that doesn't probably make sense to people, but... I wanted to make a drastic change. And the thing is, as you say, you, you brought up the rose tinted glasses there. I could not say to my team, guys, we're gonna go to the retailers and we're gonna tell them we're gonna drop these recipes, we're gonna go to the production partners, we're gonna, I'm gonna tell our investors this is what we're going to do and then not do it i would have just lost all face and respect and and then it wouldn't have been authentic because if i'd have played it like i perhaps a bigger business would have done which is to say okay right look at what's happening with the uh, market we need we need to do things in a way that continues to make commercial sense then yeah it just wouldn't have felt it wouldn't have felt very me it wouldn't have felt very ball i i made the Personal decision that we were going to go 100% percent plan based and the only phasing that I was prepared to do was to drop the meat and fish, and then the dairy at nine months later, because otherwise it, it was a it was a curtains for the for the brand. Mm-hmm. So I was prepared to I was prepared to phase it, but I wasn't prepared to phase it to the extent of saying okay, right, well let's wait wait another year for the big range review and just keep cracking on because I I didn't want to be part of the problem and the United Nations have said the single biggest thing any human can do to help reverse the impact of climate change is to adopt more principles of a, of a plant-based diet and so I knew that by making this decision we could be part of the solution and part of part of something that's so much greater than ball and that's that's the way I I look at every single day that we're part of something that is just so exciting. I've got a four year old, I've got a six year old. I'm, I'm Jackson and I, am bringing them up as veggie. And I just think their lives and how they look at food and, and the world is is just going to be so much different to how I was brought up with my two brothers in Manchester. I and mean, we used to drink, no disrespect to my mum, we, we used to drink gallons of milk all day long. And, and if mum ever put food on the table that didn't have meat on it, we'd, well, we'd be like kicking off. Like it was just, it just felt like there was a paradigm shift happening, and the stars aligned mentally for me. And and it just when I feel something, I'm very intuitive. Just go for it. And as you say, looking back now, it feels like it feels like it was 100 percent the right thing to do. But it, it wouldn't. Uh, well, the way I the way I kind of leveled it off in my own mind and with the team was I said, irrespective of the result for the business, it is the right thing to do. We have to make a stand. And if this means we go out of business, then you know, you guys are all great, great people. They'll they'll get a job elsewhere or yeah. I can start a business again. Like I, I, I hadn't played out the, the plan B, but it would be OK.
0: Now that's mission driven. You see, that's mission driven. And I suppose it's a bugbear of mine when if you ever challenge a company on their mission and they say, well, I have to balance that, my desire to do that with shareholder return and keeping the shareholders happy. And I think, well, then it's not really mission driven. And I suppose, you know, I'm thinking ahead to... Later this year, I'm, I'm giving a three-day workshop on route to market and, and how you show up in the market. And one of the topics is going to be mission-driven. And I think, you know, you guys are going to be my case study for authentic mission-driven business and, and showing up in a market with an authentic mission. So thanks for that. <laughs> no, genuinely. No and, I,
1: no, and I think that, again, this is another thing I've been asked in the past about the investors. I've gone against the grain because the investors involved are all people that i've worked with or are friends of mine right and so jam Jar investments the innocent founders rich adam and john were our seed investors so are ridiculously smart people by their own right but they've they've invested into bowl because they believe in me they believe in the team and yeah i obviously had to have debate it with them and make it completely clear to them why we were making this decision, but this was this was a decision we were making as the team. It wasn't, it wasn't about the investors. And so I think what I would say to entrepreneurs and people that are starting up their business that, yeah, strategically pivoting, I would not advise to do if you can avoid it. Like if you can get it right at the beginning, get it right. But the one thing I would absolutely make sure you clarify at that beginning in terms of the relationship between your investors and yourself is big strategic decisions like what the brand stands for and, and giving yourself the ability to do a bit of zig and zagging, make sure you have the final say. okay and that allows you to do stuff that maybe seems a little bit more maverick and may mean that that shareholder value thing is is secondary. I mean we, we donated in the first couple of years we made profits that we weren't intending to make or we didn't think we'd make. And we donated all of those to charity, to Action Against Hunger, which is an incredible charity. And again, most businesses probably wouldn't be able to do that because they'd have to reinvest it in the business or give it to the shareholders. And so trying to do the right thing and be a force for good as a business was part of our DNA from the beginning. So it wasn't like we suddenly had a massive mission change on that front. It just felt like that North Star could be sharpened up so much more. And I'd like to think investors want to be able to give that autonomy to the founders. Uh, I I've, I've got it so great with our investors and, and and I couldn't speak more highly of them. Do you see much of them or how does it work? They get involved when we ne- need them. We we have an investor board meeting every 12 weeks where we we send across how the performance has been, what big strategic decisions we want their input on and we all we all sit around every 12 12 weeks and spend a few hours going through that, but they very much see themselves as inputters not decision makers. Okay. And that's what that's how it's got, got to be. The investors are there to to guide and give input, not not make decisions. And I think also founders and startup businesses need to kind of need to get comfortable with the fact the investors are the lucky ones. They're the ones that get to invest in these fast growing value creators. Exactly, these passionate people that are putting it all on the line. And I think once you've got that mindset, and I've definitely got that mindset, and my investors are, are totally cool with that. It just makes that relationship so much, so much more real and authentic. Sure.
0: So one of the big things in the air at the moment then, or part of our air at the moment, is is plant-based. And the other is packaging and plastic packaging in particular. And I know you guys recently made a decision to launch your dinner boxes in, I think it's 95% plant-based
1: packaging, is it? Correct. Yeah. So it is the offcuts of sugarcane that we've pulped. It's called Bagasse. And yeah, so it's 95% plastic free and hopefully within the next year or so we should get to
0: 100%. And so one of the things I really wanted to ask you is, you know, I remember when Ball launched originally thinking that your, your jars, I mean, they reminded me of those kind of salad jars that people bring to work. The, the, what do they call those? The packed jars that people bring to work? The, kil-
1: the Kilner salad jars. Yeah. Uh,
0: and you really did a great job of replicating that on shelf and, you and, titillating my heart and mind with what I could expect from opening that jar and having it for my lunch. But as time goes on, you know, you think, okay, well, it's plastic. If I buy that, I'm going to be buying plastic. How do you in that, in your business reconcile that? Because obviously the plastic does a job for you in terms of shelf life, and that's a key customer service piece for
1: you. But how do you reconcile the plastic bit in your business? Every decision we make around sustainability is, is a balancing act between many multiple factors. And I doff my cap to Sir David Attenborough using his audience and impact to really bring plastic to the public's attention and and I absolutely love it. As As a brand we have loads of initiatives in play at the moment and I can give you some examples of where we're trying to reduce, encourage people to reuse and recycle over and above those three. We're also looking to replace where we can and overall just look at a responsibility strategy. So if you take a salad jar as the example that you've just given there, we, in January, replaced our plastic lid with an aluminium lid. And over the year, that will save 22 tonnes of plastic. My input costs for that aluminium lid is three times as expensive as the plastic lid. Okay, But we're doing it because we're trying to reduce down our plastic. The jar itself at this moment in time is 100% recyclable. And also lots of people are upcycling it. So we've we've had a campaign running for almost three years now, hashtag Don't Waste Create, where reminding people that plastic as a material is, is really useful in the food industry. It's food safe. It allows you to feast with your eyes like you alluded to a minute ago. And also it massively helps with shelf life. So we make our salad jars today. We keep it chilled throughout the chilled supply chain. It, it it lasts five or six days. If we put it into a cardboard box, not only would we probably sell less because you wouldn't be able to see the products, but also more importantly, the shelf life would reduce by 30% and then you just push the problem around the ecosystem so as a brand we're always looking at initiatives to see how we can reduce down the amount of plastic we're using and government need to do their bit as well the circular economy only works if everybody does their bit and there's, there's 39 different recycling schemes in England there's, there's one in Wales and unsurprisingly the, the Welsh recycle 20% more than us and it's it's tough we've got a piece of innovation launching this summer that's 100 100% plastic free.
0: So is it small steps or you take the steps you can take when you can take them, but it's not strategic pivot stuff? Because, you know, what strikes me about the decision you made around plant-based was you felt really strongly about it and you just did it. Could you not apply the same thinking here and say, right, well, we're going to strategically pivot on the plastic packaging piece? No,
1: because there aren't, at this moment in time, better options that tick all of our responsibility boxes. Okay, I could go into a cardboard box with our salads and get loads of press, and everyone would say, Oh, well done, what a what a great brand ball is. But then wastage would go through the roof and you just push the problem around the ecosystem. The, the wastage is a massive food waste is a massive, massive problem. And so what we're not going to do is I don't feel there's a need for us to strategically pivot in the same way with our packaging. But we will constantly try to improve what we're doing and reduce down the impact. I mean, again, I've not gone public with this, but we've just done a partnership with um, a forest up in Nottingham where we've calculated the CO2 emissions of the business and uh, as individuals, personally and professionally, and we're planting trees to, to offset. Our carbon emissions, and I think the this net zero and get it becoming one hundred percent, only using one hundred percent recyclable plastic in the future. All of, there's lots of initiatives, a lot of the bigger companies are doing, it, but we're already doing that, and we're already ticking those boxes. So,
0: so you're doing loads of things. You really are.
1: We are, but I mean, we're definitely not perfect as well. But it's not going to stop us trying to be. Hopefully, somebody will be listening to this podcast, and they'll be working on a piece of innovation within the the packaging world that we can be using and we we could jump on that. We'll definitely be ready to make moves into more sustainable packaging as and when they become available.
0: So what's next for Ball this year then?
1: A lot. (laughs) We have big growth ambitions. So we've got 19 SKUs in market at the moment. By January 2021, that is likely to be... 30. Wow. We will, as part of increasing the range, be moving it into at least one, potentially two new categories. I mentioned the size of the team growing earlier. Now there's some level of clarity on Brexit. I really want to kick on with our international ambitions. So first stop, your home country, Ireland, I would love both to be available in Ireland. Next stop the continent. So across products, the people, and the fridges where we're available, I just want us to do more and more to help make it easy for people to get more plants into their diet. And it feels like a such a unique moment in time where people really are taking such an interest in food. It is the only conscientious thing we need to do to survive. It's the biggest environmental decision we face every single day. And if Bowl can become the brand that is loved by meat eaters and meat eaters as part of that start to reduce down their meat, fish and dairy intake, then we'll be a really happy team.
0: Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show and for your honesty and sharing all of your experience and insights. We really appreciate it. We wish you the very best of luck this year with all of the things you're doing. That's quite a year you have ahead of you. And we hope you'll come back on the show towards the end of the year and let us know how you're getting on.
1: Hundred percent, and thanks so much for taking interest in in our story.
0: Well, I really, you know, it was really lovely to get to know you guys because I didn't realise that behind the scenes you do so much for in terms of sustainability, and you know, the piece about giving your profits away in the first two years has really touched me as well. So, thank you for sharing with
1: us. My pleasure.
0: Keep listening to find out how Paul and Ball Foods are getting on during the COVID nineteen crisis. Paul. Thanks so much for coming back on the show to update us on how you guys have been getting through the COVID crisis. So tell us, what's it been like for Bull? I mean, what have your business challenges been and how are you managing them?
1: So no, absolute pleasure to come back. We've been working remotely as a team since early March. So it's been a really difficult, tough time for the whole team. Sure. Unlike lots of other businesses within the grocery sector, our sales have been slashed in half pretty much overnight. A large proportion of our business is in the out of home area, and obviously, there aren't many people out on the streets nowadays but buying products from the likes of Costa Coffee or travel sites like WH Smith. So, our sales line was hit pretty hard as a consequence of that. As a startup brand, we've obviously had to do what lots of other businesses have done and adjust our cost base accordingly. So, over the last Month We've been through the process of furloughing 25% of the team. Everyone else who stayed has taken a 20% pay cut. We've reduced down our discretionary spend significantly and trying to do everything we can to focus on the, the health and well-being of the team. We've managed to keep producing throughout this and, and are exploring new routes to market with a digital-first mindset so direct consumer, partnering with various businesses to be able to get our products into the hands of people who, for the most part, are obviously at home now. So it's it's been tough, but I've always got massive perspective on things. And, and there's so many other people who I know who've, never mind, had a 50% sales cut. They've quite literally gone out of business. They have no sales, people in the hospitality, the leisure, the travel industry, and it's just been quite... A, brutal experience, I think, for lots of different people in business. And and then you start to think about the humanity side of things and, and the people that are losing their lives and people that are frontline workers and key workers are risking their own health and livelihood every single day. So again, it's, as much as this has been a tough time for us, I've been so proud at how the team have responded. I really do think positively that there'll be a lot of good that can come from this on the other side. And I think it's helped us appreciate and have an even greater appreciation of what it is that we do, because we're all about trying to inspire the world to eat more plants and live a life that's better for people's health and kinder to the planet. And I'm not saying uh, adopting more principles of a plant-based diet is going to solve everything, but it would certainly reduce the risk of these kind of pandemics that have, for the most part, come from mistreatment of animals and how the industrialized food system can create a lot of problems.
0: So tell me, Paul, what's it like, you know, when you see sales in your business being slashed in half, what are the first things that you have to do? And had you ever imagined before this kind of situation or were you having to think on your feet?
1: So for us, it was quite sudden. And so crisis management is, I guess it's something that you learn, (laughs) you learn it from a kid uh, growing up, especially when you've got an older brother. So it was something that I think as the leader of the business, you've you've got to be the most calm, methodical person. Um, My immediate focus is is on the team and their well-being because I could see, even before Boris Johnson announced the lockdown, I could see the way things were going to play out as we all could because we were obviously a few weeks behind China and Italy. So it was obvious to me that there was going to be lockdown. And so we had to get the team ready for working remotely. So moving Tables, chairs, setting people up to be able to work remotely from their homes, doing that before the government made it mandatory. Very, very transparent communication with the team. From the off, I said to the team, I didn't didn't hide anything from the team. I immediately said to the team, this was going to mean we were going to have to go through a cost-cutting process of, of serious significance. And, and there'd be three groups that we would all fall into. We would either stay and have to take a pay cut or you'd be furloughed, or obviously there would be redundancies. And thankfully, to this point in time, we've all managed to fit into either group one or two, and we've not had to make any redundancies. And, and that's been something that I'm really determined not to do. And it's really difficult for us all to take an umbrage and throw pelters at the politicians all of the time. But I think they're slightly slow out of blocks. But the support for the furloughing, that being able to cover... 80% of people's salaries up to £2,500 a month is an absolute godsend because I think it's helped small businesses like Boll be able to furlough people and and tell people, yeah, see it, a, a, see it as a mini paid sabbatical, if you like. They're legally obviously can't work for Boll, but they can maybe read those books that they've never got around to reading or do an open university course and upskill themselves, deepen their knowledge in a way that perhaps in normal circumstances they wouldn't have done. And to the people that have stayed and, and are continuing to work at ball again, I'm I'm yes, the business is smaller, but it's more complex. And so it's not like the workload has decreased and culturally trying to still have that relationship that we've all got, but doing it through the medium of a computer screen is something we've all had to get used to pretty quickly. So uh, yeah, it's done my whole team has just been absolutely amazing and how they've responded to it. Everybody has understood we were quite clear with people from the beginning. This was not going to be about the people staying with the people that were the most high performing or people that had last in first out of the business. This was what the absolute critical roles that we need to be performed over the next 4, 8, 12 weeks. And we restructured the entire business and budgeting process. So our new financial year started at the beginning of April and we pretty much focused all our attention on this first quarter where normally we'd be thinking 12, 18 months out because I really don't think any business that is budgeting and planning based on what happened pre-CV19, I, I, think is, I think could be a bit of an issue because I think it'd be like basing it on a foreign country. The world and the market, the consumers, the categories, I think there's going to be massive, massive change. So our focus is about how we can make the best of this short-term period where everyone's in lockdown and then obviously start to think about next stage.
0: So you're imagining what the world's going to be like after the crisis and what that'll mean for your business model and how you get your product to your consumers?
1: For sure yeah I think the majority of our business over the first five years we've been in business has been in grocery retail or or out of home channels and Mm -hmm. a very very small part of our business has been through the medium of digital, we've got a, a level of retail.com, but it's a small part of the business. Now take my mum, for example, my mum is now ordering stuff online and yeah, she's never done that in her entire life. So I think this, this period will force younger, older generations to use online more and more. And that will mean they probably will be shopping less as they get accustomed to online. So I think every business, I don't think it's very profound what I'm saying, every business will be and should be probably thinking about how those behaviours might impact their future business. And for us at Ball, it's about how we can make sure that we massively step up the ability for people to get our products online. I mean, I've been blown away by how many businesses have strategically pivoted and have gone from having shops, for example, to suddenly turning their whole business into a delivery service. It's quite incredible. And we're not having to strategically pivot that much. What we're doing is we're looking at how we can create an e-commerce platform directly, but also how we can partner with other businesses to make sure that we can piggyback onto what they're doing. Yeah. Our channel strategy has been significantly fast-tracked and made more diverse overnight and i very much hope that the core business that has been paused will be reactivated and and so ultimately we should have run rates coming out of this that not only match what we were doing but potentially better it yeah but for me it's never been about the numbers the whole ball experience has has not been about the numbers so i don't think i've been as hit as hard as some Founders or business owners, because having the business slashed by 50% overnight, I've already experienced that because we did that when we dropped meat, fish and dairy. That's a very good point. And I've not got investors that are being overbearing. We had an investor board meeting last week. We've told them everything we've done as the executive board and to a person, they're all hugely, hugely supportive. The team are in good spirits, our partners are doing their best to support and so for me it's not about coming out the other side and having a, a bigger business it's about coming out the other side and having an even better business that has a purpose that is even more deeply rooted and beliefs and values and relationships and a culture between us as a team that's even stronger and I do think there's so many good things that are happening we're not advertising what we're doing from a charitable perspective but we've donated over 10,000 meals we've I'm talking with lots of other business leaders about how we can work together on helping the most vulnerable as part of all of this. So when you're thinking about that stuff, the fact that our business is a lot smaller and might continue to be a lot smaller, I don't know that that's not the benchmark of whether or not I'm going to be content or not is there's got to be some deeper benefit to come out of this.
0: Well, Paul, on that note, thank you so much for coming back to update us. And we wish you all the best during this period and going forward. Once it all settles down again. Good luck to you and to the whole team.
1: My absolute pleasure.